name's Mary Tivy, and welcome back to the Animal Health Surveillance Podcast. So today we're going to be discussing an area of surveillance that's perhaps less widely known about. We have as a guest today, um, Becky Lawson, who is from the Zoological Society of London. So Becky is a senior research fellow and wildlife vet at the Institute of Zoology, and she works on the Garden Wildlife Health Project, which aims to monitor the health of and identify disease threats to British wildlife. Um, so focusing on things like garden birds, amphibians, reptiles, hedgehogs, etc. So thank you so much, Becky, for um, coming down to talk to us today. So, yeah, so I guess I'll get started by um, uh, asking then. Um, it would be great if you'd be able to just kind of maybe give us an overview of the purpose and work of the Garden Wildlife Health Project. Yes, of course. Um, so Garden Wildlife Health, it's, it's a national project and we aim to both monitor the health of and identify disease threats. To, to garden wildlife but we've got a particular focus on amphibians, garden birds, hedgehogs and reptiles and the scope is across Great Britain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm based at the Zoological Society of London and we, we coordinate the work, that's where all of the laboratory investigations are conducted but we work in, in close partnership with scientists at the British Trust for Ornithology, uh, Frog Life, and the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. We also collaborate with experts in lots of different organisations um, that have uh, knowledge of these species groups. So it's a real team effort. And um, it's, a, it's a scanning or a general disease surveillance programme, whichever terminology you use. And that means that we are interested in, in the range of both infectious and non-infectious conditions that affect these species. We always try and diagnose whether they're a, a cause of, of death, a cause of disease, perhaps they're an impo important underlying condition. And it may even be that they're incidental to wildlife health, but they're interesting or important for some other reason. So, so we think very broadly. Um, and the goal is always to try and understand the, the context, the significance of those surveillance findings and then if it's appropriate to try and identify um, recommendations that we might make to mitigate those threats um, and a good example of that would be uh, only uh, this month we've published guidance on our website about best practice for feeding garden birds and we've drawn from the experience we've, we've been involved in garden bird disease surveillance for about 25 years now and so we've we've used that knowledge to try and inform this guidance. And, and the hope is that that will help people maximise benefits, but, but minimise risks of disease transmission that, that might occur at feeding stations. So, so organisationally, Garden Wildlife Health fits within the government's um, GB Wildlife Disease Surveillance Partnership. And that was formed around uh, 2010, 2011. And it brings together government agencies, but a number of different organisations. And together we lead on surveillance for different taxonomic groups of uh, wildlife. So for wild birds, for example, the APHA focuses on waterfowl and waders and gulls because of their priority for avian influenza surveillance. So those reports go to the DEFRA helpline, whereas, as the name suggests, we focus on garden bird problems and we also uh, do some work on birds of prey. So those reports come to us via our website, gardenwildlifehealth.org. So it's a it's partnership working and a, and a team effort. Mm -hmm. 
And before I forget to mention, thanks to our funders, which include government, so DEFRA and APHA, that also a number of different charitable foundations who support the kind of public outreach and engagement parts of our work. So that's a, an overview as to how the project works and um, our activities. Yeah, that's really great to hear, actually. Um, it's really interesting to hear a little bit more about the kind of range of collaborations that the project has and just the number of organisations involved. So. Yeah, absolutely. Really collaborative work. Um, that's yeah. absolutely true. So, yeah. So obviously, you know, you've spoken about the kind of type of surveillance it is. But, you know, in your opinion, you know, what's the importance of, of this type of surveillance? Well, I've already touched on the fact that it's really broad in scope. Uh, and to me, it's really important that it fits with a kind of One Health perspective, which, which is now a really well known and recognised term. Um, and so it depends what we find as to what the context of the importance is. So I, I would start, I work at ZSL as a conservation organisation, so I, I'll start with, with biodiversity. So we uh, integrate the disease surveillance information that we collect directly with the schemes that our partners run for wildlife population monitoring. And that means that we're well placed to try and ascertain if an emerging disease is actually impacting at a population level and causing a decline. So it may not only be important for animal welfare, but also for biodiversity or conservation. And, and, and if we flip that, we might have a species that's in decline. And, and for our work, hedgehog would be a really good example here. And we want to investigate whether disease might be one factor that's contributing to that decline. And that's, that's something that we're working on. So that's one important reason, obviously, uh, public health and captive animal health. We're, we're aware that, that wild animals can act as sources of potentially zoonotic pathogens or uh, sources of infection that can uh, affect our pets or livestock. And if we understand the wildlife species that are involved and the routes of transmission, then there may be guidance that we can offer to try and mitigate that threat. And then if we look at wild animal welfare, you know, human activity can influence, can predispose to some conditions occurring. And if we change our behaviour to try and prevent that, then we may be able to optimise um, wild animal health and welfare. And then if we look at One Health in its truest sense, we can look more broadly to sort of ecosystem and wider environmental health. And we can use the samples that we collect um, to look, for example, for chemical or contaminant exposure in wildlife. Um, so to, to get um, uh, an evidence of kind of wider ecosystem level effects. And I think with surveillance, it's always, it's always really important um, to be aware that, that we're, we're trying to be proactive as well. So we're not only looking at conditions that occur, but we're conducting horizon scanning. And we're part of um, international networks like the European Wildlife Disease Association's uh, surveillance network. And that means that we're able to identify threats that are affecting wild animals in different countries that, that could um, uh, occur here. So perhaps we want to set up early warning systems in terms of awareness or diagnostics. And maybe there are things that we can do to try and prevent that incursion. We'd all rather work with prevention than control. So there might be um, uh, recommendations around biosecurity measures, for example. So hopefully that gives some kind of context about it really does depend on what our surveillance finds as to what the significance and importance of that finding may be. 
Yeah, 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 certainly. And it's really nice, I think, um, you know, you mentioned the kind of one health aspect of it as well. I think it's a really, um, you know, it's an, obviously it's very, you know, topical and things at the moment as well. But yeah, it's a really nice, um, you know, idea to kind of bring that into the, the wildlife side of things as well. Yeah, very important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So obviously um, you mentioned a little bit about, um, you know, some of the, um, the the diseases and things that you're finding. Um, so, you know, have you got any examples of perhaps health threats that you've identified you know, recently at the topical? Yeah, well, unfortunately, as, as you imagine, that, that there are there are many examples that we, we could talk about, but perhaps it would help if I just pick out an example for the different groups of, of wildlife that we, we work with and that will illustrate the kind of range of some of the problems um, and activities that we're involved with. So if we start with garden birds, those are the, you know, the most numerous reports that we receive, um, really important to mention finch trichomonosis. So um, the, the background is that trichomonosis is uh, a disease um, that uh, is caused by a protozoan parasite, trichomonas gallinae, and it's been known to affect pigeons and doves and birds of prey for hundreds of years. But we first diagnosed it in finches in Great Britain around 2005 and, and confirmed it to be novel and an emerging condition at that time. So the parasite causes um, uh, lesions to develop in the back of the throat, which means that these poor affected birds can't swallow. Uh, the parasites then spread in fresh saliva, um, and that's either between birds during courtship um, or when adults feed their young, or it could also happen at shared food and water sources. And that's where these concerns can arise around potential for transmission around garden bird feeding stations. So, so through the post-mortem examinations we've conducted, we've demonstrated that a wide range of passerines or songbirds are susceptible but it's very much the green finch that appears to be most susceptible, most impacted. Um, and and, and it uh, remains the most common infectious disease that we diagnose in garden birds. It's caused epidemic mortality. And we've provided evidence to suggest that it it's the main cause of 70% decline of green finch breeding populations in the UK that's occurred over the past 15 years. So this is a, um, a really important example that demonstrates that diseases can emerge in even well-known, well-studied populations uh, of wildlife and lead to dramatic declines over relatively short periods of time. So that's um, a very important example of a, an emerging infectious disease of wild birds that we've been involved with. And then we move to a much uh, a less well-studied group. So, so for reptiles, um, I would focus on a condition called snake fungal disease. Um, it's more commonly referred to as aphidiomycosis. Now. Um, it causes skin lesions typically to develop in these affected um, animals. And as the name suggests, it affects snakes and it's caused by a fungus, um, aphidiomyces ophiodicola. So over the past 15 years or so, it's been uh, detected and is known to affect quite a variety of wild snakes in North America. But we detected it for the first time in wild snakes in Europe through this work. Um, so we've seen it um, cause disease in grass snakes in England. 
Um, but there are there are many questions that remain. Uh, we don't know uh, the frequency or the impact of this disease on grass snake populations. And we also still don't know if the adder or smooth snake or other native snakes uh, are vulnerable to infection. Um, and whilst garden birds are easy to see and well studied, I'd say that for, for vertebrate wildlife, it's, it's terrestrial reptiles that we know least about their health conditions. They're cryptic, they're, they're really difficult to study. And so it's, it's really important that we work with ecological consultants and herpetologists who help us tremendously with, with trying to conduct this wild reptile disease surveillance. Yeah. And then on to amphibians. So for amphibians, um, an important threat uh, that we are on the lookout for um, is salamander chytrid. So the trachea chytridium, uh, salamandra vorans, or, or B-cell for short, um, has been uh, recognised as a cause of mortality of newts and salamanders in mainland Europe over the last uh, decade or so. And current evidence uh, suggests that it's um, a native to South Asia and has been introduced into mainland Europe. And it's caused population collapse of uh, fire salamanders in the Netherlands. So it's had dramatic impact. So research in uh, Great Britain has shown that B cells present in captive populations of amphibians um, but our surveillance to date has found no evidence of it in the wild. Uh, studies show that uh, the great crested newt, a, a European protected species, unfortunately, it does appear to be susceptible to fatal disease with B cell. So it's really important that we do all we can to try and prevent it, um, it, it its incursion into what the wild. And so we've uh, worked with a variety of organisations and we've produced an amphibian disease alert that's posted on our website and that includes information on how people can try and prevent inadvertently releasing uh, diseases from captive amphibians into the wild and also how we can try and prevent spread from wild to wild populations. And at the same time, we are particularly vigilant for any reports of wild newt mortality that are sent to our website. We investigate them as a priority and we routinely test samples from all of the amphibians we examine for, for B cell fungus so that we hope that we've got that early warning, early detection system in place if that were to happen. And finally, for hedgehogs, you know, a variety of conditions uh, detected, but some current uh, research that's underway may be of interest with, with Ferris Science Limited, um, where we've uh, taken samples from our tissue archive of the hedgehogs that we've examined. We've got tens of thousands of samples um, on site, uh, and that um, has enabled us to do this work where we are looking for chemical residues, um, for example, anticoagulant redenticides, um, in the tissues of these hedgehogs. So we want to learn more about how frequently they're exposed. And then, very importantly, what's the significance, if, if any, of that exposure to the health of the hedgehogs. So I hope that gives you some flavour for current work, things we're looking out for at the moment, and some of our kind of most important um, findings since the work began. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's really interesting to hear about you know, the variety of different threats that different species are experiencing. Um, 
and also kind of the extent of the severity of, of some of these issues like you talked about in garden birds I mean it's something that you know yeah perhaps that um it, it's such an it, such an important thing for people to know about um so it's really great to kind of showcase these things here and and mm-hmm. you know just be able to see kind of the yeah mm-hmm. different different threats in, in different species yeah yeah Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, you're doing some public outreach work and that kind of thing. Um, so kind of what are the ways that the public can kind of get involved with the project? So absolutely. Garden Wealth is, Garden Wildlife Health is uh, what we would call a citizen science project. And that just means that we rely entirely on public participation in this scientific research to make it happen. While animals don't have owners, like our pets and livestock do, um, and so you know we really need um, input from members of the public who can help us. So again, illustrating how much it's a team effort. So briefly, we we appeal to um, anyone who sees signs of um, a sick or dead garden wildlife of the species that, that I've spoken about. Um, and in the event that that sadly happens, that, that they report those observations to us on our website, gardenwildlifehealth.org. And, and if it's appropriate, if, if they're available, digital photos can be uploaded and they can be really helpful in enabling us to understand or get a feel for what might be going on. So um, this is the way that you can imagine across the country throughout the year, we can conduct wildlife disease surveillance. And without people's help, it would be logistically and financially impossible to do that in any other way. Um, So what happens is that people report online and then we have uh, two project vets who screen all of these reports and uh, they will typically email with an individual response that, From the history, it might be possible to give some indication of potential causes. Um, Perhaps we might be able to signpost to some of our disease fact sheets for more information. And it it may be that it would be appropriate to offer some guidance on garden habitat management. And then in the event that somebody has actually found a, a freshly dead wild animal, at that point, one of our project vets typically has a call with them that speaks on the phone and discusses um, whether it may be possible to arrange submission for post-mortem examination. And obviously that's the way that we can reach a a definitive diagnosis, um, which is uh, most um, important and um, allows us to collect this um, archive of sample tissues. Important to say, obviously, that we always report back the results that we find um, uh, to the people who get in touch. And that all participation in the project free of charge, the costs are covered uh, by the, the project. So there's no barrier to participation there. So, so all of that describes what we would call the ad hoc, opportunistic, anybody can help us reports. And at the same time, um, we have, uh, we're tremendously grateful for participants in the British Trust for Mythology's Garden Birdwatch Scheme. And this is a network of people across the country who each week, remarkably, online provide information on the wildlife that they've seen in their garden. And then at the same time, they kindly let us know whether or not they saw signs of what they perceive to be ill health in those species. And as you can imagine, that gives us a, uh, we call it a systematic, a more structured data set 
And we can use that when we're, we're doing analyses to try and control for observer effort and reduce bias um, in the surveillance work that we do. So there are two reporting streams and they're really complementary um, that help mm -hmm. us kind of maximise the information that we can collect. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's really nice to hear. And um, yeah, obviously, you know, all of those ways that the public can get involved and um, yeah. And, you know, obviously how that then um, contributes to you, you know, getting those samples in. Yeah, we absolutely couldn't do it without the public's help. And, and uh, you know, we, we, we've, 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 you know, their motivation to participate. We've, we've, we've um, done a recent study on that. And just to, to make sure that we, um, uh, you know, encourage people to continue to contribute in the long term. And, and people uh, tend to be motivated because of concerns around animal welfare and conservation, as you can manage and imagine when the, these problems occur but also because they want to understand, they want to learn more. And that's why we, we recognise it's so important that we continue to provide information on, uh, on our website. So um, we're a research institute. We, we start with peer-reviewed publications and, and we do publish open access wherever we can do so that everyone can access that information. But we also use press releases, e-newsletters, social media, um, uh, online resources, public outreach events, conference talks. We do all sorts of different things to, to make sure that we can kind of raise awareness and maximise the um, impact of uh, the things that we're able to find out about with wildlife health. Yeah. Yeah, it's really nice to hear, actually. I mean, obviously, coming from, you know, as a vet, coming from a vet, veterinary background, you know, I've certainly been... Um, you know, impressed in the past uh, of, you know, of how kind of members of the public are, do feel really um, kind of involved with, you know, got a wildlife health as well. And, you know, you get asked questions about, I'm, I'm quite concerned. I've seen, you know, this particular, you know, animal and it, you know, I was worried about it and that kind of thing. So it's really nice to hear that the ways that they can get well, involved. Absolutely. And, and vets in, in practice can can really help as well. You, you know, you've mentioned that it, 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 there's there's a couple of ways. One is just through uh, raising awareness. You know, if people, if clients in particular um, have an interest, um, she can help uh, uh, raise awareness of the project. It may also be that the practices have links with local wildlife rehabilitators um, and they may not be aware of the project. So so to, to let people know that there's this um, appeal really for their help to report sightings to our website so that together we can learn about wildlife health and at the same time that the website gardenwildlifehealth.org has has we've got um, a library of uh, about 30 fact sheets now on the common conditions or important conditions um, that we detect um, or diagnose and these um, are short digests of information that can be downloaded as PDFs, printed off to clients perhaps um, who have a, an interest in a particular condition. Um, so, so that's helpful and, and the second way that, that vets could get involved is um, just reporting to us directly also. So um, in practice, as, as I'm sure you've had the experience of, um, unfortunately, people, you know, sadly people find um, injured wild animals and it's not uncommon that um, if, if they're presented, uh, that they sadly die or they need to be euthanized for um, welfare reasons. Um, and so practices um, may be able to um, uh, help by reporting uh, sightings to us, particularly if it's something that they perceive to be um, unusual. All, all we need is, is a date and an approximate uh, location. I mean, our resources are limited, so obviously we do focus investigations on um, animals that die 
or a euthanasia shortly after admission to care because we we want to be clear that the conditions we diagnose reflect those that happen in the wild rather than nosocomial disease, things that might develop in captivity. But we are always keen to hear from vets in practice who might have uh, seen or been alerted to something that they feel is an issue um, with garden wildlife health. And we will do our best um, to help and and be very interested to hear what they have um, um, heard about their experience. Yeah, I'm sure that's something that vets in practice will be really happy to hear about, actually, Um, you know, that there is something that they can do um, just that can make that difference in these situations. Yeah, so thank you very much, Becky, um, for being part of the episode today. It's been a fascinating discussion and it was really great to hear a little bit more about the project itself and its wide ranging benefits and the way that vets and the public can get involved. So thank you very much for coming down to speak to us. So you can check out the next episode. Um, In that, we're going to be moving into the area of equine disease surveillance. So we're going to be talking to Fleur Whitlock, who works as part of the equine epidemiology group, who were originally based at the Animal Health Trust. So if you work in equine practice, that promises to be a really interesting discussion surrounding equine surveillance. So don't miss it. It's going to be available in two weeks time. And if you like the series, please, again, do mention it to your friends and your colleagues. And of course, for any news and updates, you can follow me on Twitter at the AHS podcast. If you have any questions or any suggestions, then do feel free to get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. And otherwise, thanks so much for listening today.